Welcome to the Auditorium, a portal to the fringes of culture. Hello and welcome to Auditorium podcast number 14 with myself... (laughs) Dr. Damien, did you just say smelly? No, I said so many. Oh, so many. It sounded like smelly from over here. Sorry. With myself, Dr. David Brownwell, and my co-host, Smelly... (laughs) Mountfield. Smelly Mountfield. Yeah. And what have we got got, uh, lined up today? Oh, I tell you, I can't wait for this. It's Nazis in space. A subject dear to your heart, probably. Well, Nazis on beasts, Nazis in space, Nazis under the Antarctic, Nazis anywhere they shouldn't be is always fun. Which was pretty much everywhere in Europe, wasn't it, back in the 1940s? that's true. Indeed. So, and and our speaker is a journalist called David Robinson. Now, I know David Robinson as a a writer for the broadsheets, and mainly with a focus on the economy. That's what he writes about. He's an economist. Yes. But I know that, or I heard that he'd, he'd taken a year out as we all do at some point in our life, probably relationship breakup, mental breakdown, that kind of thing. And he'd spent most of it watching weird shit on YouTube. And oh, and he'd got, into, he'd got into David Icke. And the Nazis in space, I think that came from watching Iron Sky. And then he was asking Well, himself, Iron Sky was playing on a popular kind of conspiracy meme or theme mm. uh, that Gary McKinnon uh, hacked. And, you know, when he, uh, the, the strange fellow hacked into the uh, bases and claimed he found unedited NASA footage of, of moon bases that before they'd been uh, photographed shopped out and all that sort of stuff so there's long been ever since the 60s i think this this idea that there's there's stuff on the moon man mm. um and so you know it's based on that isn't it well and i think i think i think dave did the classic thing yeah he, he, he watched something on youtube and then he got interested in it and yeah. then he ran with it from the journalist point of view he explored it from every angle right so here he is david robinson on the theme of nazis and space this book cover shows a science fiction novel published in 1947 by the science fiction writer Robert Heinlein, Rocket Ship Galileo. The plot is quite simple. A team of astronauts land on the moon, but find someone else has got there first. What they discover is a secret Nazi moon base. Now this was 1947, and the horrors of World War II were still fresh in people's minds. In fact, over the years, lots of science fiction titles have played on this theme. The Man in the High Castle by the great Philip K. Dick. In an alternative future, the Axis powers win the war. And the Nazis send spaceships to colonise the solar system. It all left me wondering whether, beyond the conspiracy theories and the wild speculation, are there any nuggets of truth behind the Nazi space legend? One has to ask... Why would anyone care? Well, I'm a journalist, so I'm always always after silly stories. And I split up with my girlfriend and I needed something to occupy my time. (laughs) Exhibit 1. A constant in much of this material is... the Nazi flying saucer. In the context of the frenzied experimentation that took place during World War II, The idea that the Nazis looked into saucer-shaped prototypes is not as ridiculous as it might seem today. Allied bombing raids had targeted runways across the Third Reich. If the Nazis could construct a craft, some sort of experimental helicopter-type autogyro that could take off and land vertically, they would be at a considerable advantage. But is there any evidence to support this? This book by military journalist Nick Cook and you can always trust the Discovery Channel for Truth, this documentary from about five years ago, 
Both link UFO sightings over the past half century with a secret Nazi flying saucer program during World War II. The problem is, not even a seat cushion exists today to verify their existence. In fact, most of these claims rely on sketchy secondary sources. For example, an influential book by the Polish journalist Igor Witowski, a chap I've chatted to, claimed the Nazis had powerful anti-gravity technology known as the Bell. Apparently, the Nazis kept the Bell in a secret underground base, and, according to Mr. Witowski, this structure on the Czech-Polish border was used to levitate flying saucer-shaped craft using the Bell. What is Witowski's evidence? He says he was shown top-secret classified documents by an unnamed intelligence contact. But he was not allowed to make any photocopies, and he was only allowed to transcribe the documents by hand. Hmm. So, was this structure used to levitate flying saucers? A. Or B. An abandoned water cooler? I'll leave you to decide. So the question is, are there any first-hand sources that justify or explain the Nazi UFO program or the alleged Nazi UFO program? There's only one. The Nazi UFO phenomenon can be traced back to the early 1950s and a German engineer named Rudolf Schriever. He claimed to have built a disc-shaped prototype at BMW's pro facility in Prague during the war. It was, he said. A 15-metre diameter craft powered by a circular plane of rotating turbine blades. He said the prototype was destroyed during the Russian advance. Now, Schriever died in 1953, but he created an enduring legend. Now, a German academic I've been corresponding with researched Rudolf Schriever's stories and found lots of inconsistencies and misinformation. So was Schriever A, telling the truth, or B, a jobless veteran living in desolate post-war Germany who made the whole thing up for a bit of cash. I'll let you decide. So did the Nazis design UFOs? Well, no, <laughs> they didn't. But there is a far more surefire story that links Nazis with space. In the late 1920s, a group of space-obsessed engineers formed the Verin für excuse my German, the VFR, the Society for Space Travel in Berlin. The group's leading light was Hermann Oberth, one of the earliest pioneers on the principles of spaceflight. The youngest member was a brilliant scientist named Werner von Braun. Now, the VFR tested liquid-fueled rockets on an abandoned ammunition dump in Berlin, and these tests saw unmanned rockets reach altitudes of more than one kilometer. But in 1933, everything changed. The Nazis came to power in 1933, and they banned civilian rocket tests. The VFR's best engineers were cajoled into working for the military. In northeastern Germany, the Nazis established the research centre Pienemunde. It was in Pienemunde that Werner von Braun developed the infamous V-2 ballistic missile. In fact, a V-2 rocket created the first ever photo of Earth from space. Von Braun was so obsessed with space that in 1944 he was imprisoned by the Gestapo for focusing on space flight rather than the war effort. Now, the Nazis' grasp of rocket technology was vastly superior to the Allies. At the end of the war, von Braun and other Nazi scientists were given the opportunity to move to the US via a then-secret program, Operation Paperclip, so the Americans could copy their know-how. These are the hundred Nazi scientists that were moved into the States and eventually worked for NASA. 
Von Braun renounced his Nazi past and became a patriotic American citizen. The establishment of NASA in the 1950s allowed Von Braun to fulfill his dream. It was Von Braun who designed the Saturn V rocket that allowed Apollo 11 to land on the moon. It's fair to say we would not have put a man on the moon without Nazi scientists. Now, Von Braun died in 1977, but despite his glittering achievements, he could never escape his Nazi past. Since his death, details have come to light about the appalling slave labour conditions in the underground factories where his V-2 missiles were built. Von Braun's moral ambiguity is perhaps best captured in this song by the satirist Tom Lehrer. Yeah. Gather round while I sing you of Werner von Braun, a man whose allegiance is ruled by expedience. Call him a Nazi, he won't even frown. Nazi schmazi, says Werner von Braun. Don't say that he's hypocritical, say rather that he's apolitical. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? <laughs> That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. <laughs> some have harsh words for this man of renown, but some think our attitude should be one of gratitude, like the widows and cripples in old London town who owe their large pensions to Werner von Braun. You too may be a big hero, once you've learned to count backwards to zero. In German or English, I know how to count down. And I'm learning Chinese, says Werner von Braun. The wonderful satirist Tom Lehrer. I love the fact that Werner is learning Chinese, very prophetic, slippery character. So did the Nazis design rockets? Yes, yes they did. Was the aim space travel? No, <laughs> no it wasn't. However, a final story supports the Nazi space legend and it's perhaps the most remarkable of them all. During World War II, there was a fierce rivalry in the Third Reich between the German army and the Air Force, the Luftwaffe. Top Nazis like big fat Luftwaffe chief Hermann Göring constantly battled to win favor with the Fuhrer. At the end of 1941, Göring's Luftwaffe was on the back foot. It had lost the Battle of Britain. The German army, meanwhile, was rampaging triumphantly across Russia. Göring needed a plan to get back into the Fuhrer's good books. At the time, the US had just joined the war following Pearl Harbor. Hitler was mad keen on attacking the US. By successfully attacking America, Göring would win favour with his boss. But there was a problem. The Luftwaffe relied on slow, piston-powered aircraft with limited range. A round trip from Berlin to New York was 7,000 miles. The US was simply too far away. A major technological innovation was needed. A few years earlier, a maverick Austrian engineer named Eugen Zenger had published a paper proposing a manned, rocket-propelled space plane. Now, it's unclear exactly how much Goring understood, but Zenger was hired and told to come up with a blueprint for an intercontinental bomber. Now, Zenger was a brilliant mathematician, but his first love, to be honest, was space and sci-fi. The plan that he submitted could have flown out of the pages of Flash Gordon. In order to bridge the Atlantic, he proposed sending a manned rocket-powered jet to the lower reaches of space. It was to be called the Silverbird. 
The Silverbird was to be launched on a huge sled attached to a two-mile monorail powered by 36 V2 rocket engines. The craft would surge forward at 1,200 miles per hour and then start climbing. 30 seconds after liftoff, a 100-ton thrust motor would ignite and it would reach an altitude of more than 80 miles above Earth. Space, as many of you know, begins at 62 miles above sea level. This allowed it to skip across the atmosphere like a stone bouncing over a pond. By this stage, it was traveling at a jaw-rattling 13,000 miles an hour. Amazingly, it was to carry a prototype dirty bomb wrapped with radioactive sand that would explode high above New York City, casting a big radioactive cloud. It was wild science fiction. But Zenger had all the mathematics worked out. Could it have worked? Sure. But it was way, way ahead of his time. Goring struggled to get his head round it. In the end, the plans were left on the shelf. The Silverbird was theoretically possible, but as I say, it was way ahead of its time. After the war, the Soviets developed a keen interest in the Silverbird. Joseph Stalin, being a mad Soviet dictator, ordered agents to kidnap Zenger and force him to work in the Soviet Union, but his bungling agents failed to locate Zenger, who by this time was hiding out in France. In the end, a copy of the Silverbird plans fell into the hands of the Americans. Sanger's ideas would greatly influence post-war thinking about space travel in the United States. He's seen as the father of the space plane, and it was an enormous influence on the space shuttle program. So did the Nazi leadership consider a plan that involved sending craft into space? Yes, yes they did. Did it happen? No, no it didn't. It got me thinking. Maybe looking at the Nazi space legend from an evidence-based perspective kind of misses the point. In the 1950s, the great Carl Jung analyzed the flying saucer phenomenon. He saw it as part of an ancient religious tradition, mankind looking to the heavens with a sense of anxiety and the hope of redemption. But in a modern scientific context, mysterious creatures from outer space replace vengeful gods with bolts of lightning. The Nazis, meanwhile, rather like the Daily Mail, occupy a unique one-dimensional place in history. The Nazis equal evil. The conjunction of Nazis and space therefore combines two monstrous concepts central to modern mythology. But what makes this union powerful is that it's grounded in just enough circumstantial evidence to make it plausible. Throw in the Nazis' dramatic iconography, and the Nazi space combination provides a terrifying motif, mixing the mysteries of the heavens with uniquely modern horrors. For this reason, I think we can expect the Nazi space legend to be around for many years to come, and we can expect many more fantastic science fiction titles like Nazi werewolves from outer space. Thank you very much. David Robinson there with Nazis and space. You've you've been involved a bit with the Nazis, haven't you? Yes, I, I have. I'm, I'm founder of the Lewis section. No, um, what what happened is I got fascinated recently by uh, New Swabia, which was the area of the uh, the Antarctic, I think it is, that um, the Germans seized in the 30s. And uh, it was just an, an area they decided to, to colonise in the name of, of Nazi Germany. Um, and they spent a great deal of time, according to various sources, building a giant sort of underground base there. And then at the end of World War II... About 100 U-boats went missing. Now, it's generally assumed that they were 
smuggling Nazis out and dropping them off in in South America and then uh, getting scuttled somewhere. But there's another theory that they ended up in this this under underwater underground base in in uh, New Swabia, as it were. Um, and then 1947, uh, a general bird um, went on a what was supposed to be a um, a meteorological mission down that away, but they took several um, destroyers down with them and an awful lot of of, 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 of firepower that wasn't supposed to be there, and, and an aircraft carrier with 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 planes on, and um, they they never made it. They came back having had considerable losses, um, and. Uh, nothing was said about it officially but a lot of the sailors afterwards were saying that they'd been attacked by craft that had come up from under the sea uh, like ufo type craft when they'd approached this area and and had massive losses through sort of advanced weapons hitting them um and after from that point on after that general bird spent all his time talking about a major threat from uh, the, the future war with america will come from from around that part of the world and that america had to arm against that so there's this you know quite fun theory that there's a there's a base uh, somewhere in the extremes of the earth there that where where well, nazis are quietly developing all their ufo technology and that slowly doing. really slowly well, really slowly but you know it's tricky they've got stuff. to be in their 90s now surely well i'm guessing that they may be you know they're bred or something like that you know but they've got uh you know, because they were doing all stuff with the Glock of the Bell, weren't they? And they they did have there's a thing called the fly trap where they they were attempting to make a craft raise up a disc like craft. It's still there in, in wherever it is in Bavaria. There's a, so they, they were mucking around with a lot of weird stuff, a lot of which went to America, of course, with von Braun and the like. Um, but obviously, that's a great starting point for any number of. Uh, Wild art conspiracy theories, which are terrific fun. They are. They are terrific fun. I I, I found a, a website the other day. Someone sent me to a website called Did the Beatles Ever Exist? Uh, with, with and someone had spent a lot of time looking at all the discrepancies in height of Paul McCartney in the various Beatles photos. Saying, well, look, here he looks taller than Ringo, and here he's shorter. How can that be? Could it be that the Beatles didn't really exist and different actors of different heights who all looked exactly like Paul McCartney and the rest of them were in on it? And the answer is no. No, they had so, stacked shoes, presumably. Yeah, yeah. So well, you, there was the whole theory that he was dead, wasn't there? That, that I he like grew, that the, grew the beard and all that, and uh, the, hand, the left hand behind his head on Sergeant Pepper's intonation. Yeah, yeah. All that. There's lots. But you, I, remember, I remember you telling me a story years ago, where, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, where you'd been asked to go and give a voiceover for a mm. documentary about the Nazis and you ah, yes. had flippantly said to because 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 in the in, in in the UK channel for the BBC it's like every possible angle has been covered with you know we're, we're unhealthily fascinated by this subject yeah. tried tried every angle to make a documentary and I think you'd flippantly said yeah what's this one called was Hitler gay and the guy had said yeah how did you guess <laughs> is that it, true nearly not quite it was it was uh, looking at the gay subculture in the SS, which was massive. Despite the fact that it was punishable by death, it was also encouraged. <laughs> it was the, the sort of double thing, because they were into the Spartan ideal and the, the Grecian beauty of men, and men being the only sort of real... The love between men in battle and everything, and, and that's the true love. You know, going back to what they perceived as ancient Greek th themes, uh, f uh, because, of course, one of the one of the most elite groups in the Spartan army uh, was, uh, um, was a gay division. 
because they 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 fought for each other and they fought extra hard because of that because they were they were usually paired up in partnership bonds and and they fought you know you fight even harder for your for your lover possibly than you do for just some bloke stood next to you and they were they were extraordinarily um efficient and brilliant one of the absolute crack squadrons of the Spartan army and you'd think they'd be forever sidetracked by getting involved with musicals and things wouldn't you then, <laughs> then actually and they had a terrific color scheme and everything in their in their in their digs um uh, barracks i should say but but yeah same to you <laughs> <laughs> barracks uh but but yes yeah, so so there, there was a you know a, a very strong theme of that but you know that's not so much conspiracy as just you know one of those weird subcurrents that happen when you get extreme ideologies for anyone that's just tuned in we were <laughs> Listening to a podcast on the Nazis and space. And then we got onto Nazis. And then we digressed. Into space. Now, as as everyone knows, the Nazis were were an incredible, dangerous threat to the the stability and the freedom of of the Western world. Mm. And and listeners will know that we've been looking at at different biscuits, uh, something biscuits, something that both myself and Mr. Mouthfield are passionate about. And so what can be more appropriate than looking at the most dangerous biscuit that's a beautiful link day in the world thank you very much now i know in the past we've been sampling different biscuits and looking into the history of them yes but i thought we'd do something a little bit different with 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 today's theme to tie in with the the nazis and space and and danger right uh, and that is to look at, at the, the the inherent dangers in in biscuits themselves now the information i'm about to give to you is genuine these are genuine statistics i thought you were going to say must go no further <laughs> it's odd to be doing a podcast well this is, well this is i mean this is this is fresh this is new information yeah. this, is, this so this, this is, is my this is the bomb this right? is my mate carl who works down the hospital who, this, who you know this is an authority and, and carl carl attended a powerpoint presentation from a health and safety nut job about the dangers of biscuits in the workplace and he just carl was sitting there just tweeting me photos and information that is about quite it quite fabulous so right. first of all so this is this is what we have to share in the UK, mm-hmm. an average of 500 people a year go into hospital with biscuit-related injuries. Wow. 29% are caused by scalding from being sla- splashed by hot tea when they dunk their biscuit uh, into the tea. Yeah, that's a hell of a splash. 28% choke on biscuit crumbs. Yeah, I can Ten- imagine that. 10% break their teeth on hard biscuits. I can't think which biscuits in the UK are so hard. Eating, like, sort of navy tack or something i don't know i don't know that's, think of a biscuit that hard. So that's one in ten possibly so a ginger snap ginger snaps can be it a could be that's a good point a ginger yeah. snaps the, the, the clues in the name yeah and uh three percent poke themselves in the eye with a biscuit wow they can't even find their mouth <laughs> Wow. I think there's there's more serious issues at stake. I think if you yeah. if you can't even get the that's biscuit, that's the in your least mouth, of your worries. Really. Imagine sticking it r- right in your Maybe eye. Maybe just a cry for help. Four uh, percent from falling off chairs when reaching for a biscuit. Well, you can see that you, you you're reaching over to to get your favourite and oh, then I you see. fall off the chair. I thought they were sort of in a high place. Someone <laughs> deliberately for- put the biscuits <laughs> ten foot up. Um, right. And uh, and one there's a case of one man who got stuck in wet concrete trying to rescue a packet of cookies, but he doesn't specify what kind of cookies they were because if it's those really nice ones from Waitrose, you probably would risk. Yeah, they, they risk. probably cost you as much as the concrete. Anyway, you want to get them. Exactly, exactly. So the question is, which is the most dangerous biscuit in the UK? Well, earlier I was calling it as the uh, Bolivian biting biscuit, wasn't I? But uh, of course, I think they've been not, they've been banned now. They're not UK, are they? Um, I'm I'm I don't know why, but I just sense it's a biscuit I've had I've had some run-ins with yeah. in the past myself. I don't know really if it counts as a biscuit, but macaroons, macaroons. I've been the number of times I've choked on a coconut-based biscuit 
it's the little stringy bits. They get in the back of your throat. I know, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the, yeah it catches, doesn't so it? So I'm calling some kind of coconut base, maybe a coconut ring. Let's say coconut ring. Let's say coconut ring, but you're wrong. Oh, uh, go on then. It's the custard cream. The... the it looks like butter wouldn't melt in its exactly. mouth. Exactly. Innocent, an innocent looking biscuit. Absolutely. Just lying there on the plate. Why? Why is it so dangerous? Why is that more dangerous than any other biscuit? It's a, it's a Prezé cancer. It's just the most popular biscuit in England. So oh, of course. Therefore, it's statistically, statistics. it's the most dangerous. There you go. Our, our producer has got his head in his hands that we hadn't spotted that earlier. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, that does make sense. Now, we, we're just going to wrap up now with it's competition time. I yeah. thought thought it'd be, it would be a good episode to... It's been a while. It's time it has, we had a competition. It has been a while since... Because we always get snowed under with competition. It's amazing what comes we do. Through. We get we get a we get a we get a damn fine response, don't we? From, we do. from our listener. So <laughs> he does. So the well. question is: Have you had a biscuit-related injury, directly mm, or work. indirectly related to the Third Reich or space travel? So that is the that's the angle that we're looking for. Right. And we want you to send in your stories, and the best stories that we get, we will send you a, a family pack of custard creams and a first aid kit. That's a good prize. It's yeah. a hell of a prize. It's, I know, I know. Well, and listen, who hasn't had some kind of Nazi-related space biscuit incident? Well, exactly. I mean, we're going to be inundated with, 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 with stories, which, yeah. which I'm looking forward to. And so, as always, the, the address to send your, your biscuit slash Nazi slash space, uh, space travel <laughs> stories to is uh, Mr. Mountfield and Dr. Bramwell, Auditorium Podcast, England. That should find us, shouldn't it? Yep. As long as you don't put any postage on it, they don't like it with the postage on. Well, it's it's not really. I mean, everyone knows who we are, so it, it will get here without, yeah. without without stamps. So yeah, don't worry about the stamps. And that that about wraps it up um, from from myself and Mr. Matt. We'll do that line again. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know how to finish, do we? We're bad at finishing. <laughs> Let's try well, again. We, but we can always have the mu- We can always have the chat going on and the music and the yeah. music fading in even this yeah. bit here even we could be doing we could be fading out with this no they would are, never do that while they we're would deconstructing never do that. no they would never we? do that well, we could it'd be not it'd be i don't know the listeners like that there's kind of no thing way that's gonna happen where they're party to that is not gonna happen it's not, not gonna happen over my dead body this is gonna be edited out isn't it yeah the auditorium is presented by dr david bramwell and mr david mountfield the producers are lance dan and andrew mailing You can discover more about the show at oddpodcast.com, where you can find out about upcoming events and festival shows. If you'd like to give a talk about something that you're passionate about, then email us at contact at oddpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at oddpodcastuk. Talks from the Auditorium are featured in Earnest Journal, a magazine for the curious and adventurous. If you like the auditorium, then please leave a review for us on iTunes.